I read an article this past week that uh, that captured my my attention, and um, it was about a little girl named Ashlyn Blockers. She's a little girl from Georgia, and she looks like a normal five year old, but but is far from it. Her parents and, and kindergarten teachers, the article said, all describe her the same way. She's she's fearless. That's how they. They describe her. While she, while she looks normal, she's not. She has a disorder that makes her unable to feel pain. It's a genetic mutation that disrupts the development of the small nerve fibers that carry the sensations of pain as well as heat and cold. So she can't feel pain and she can't tell when something's hot and she can't tell when something is, is cold. Otherwise, she's... She senses everything like you and I would. She can feel the texture of, of nickels and dimes as she sorts them on the, on the floor of her, of her bedroom. She can feel the, the weight of her backpack that, that is pink and that she carries to, to kindergarten every day. She can, she can feel the embrace of a, of a hug. The article said she has hunger cravings. For her after school, favorite after-school snack, which is pickles and strawberry milk. I don't like either of those. Ashlyn simply can't tell when something will hurt her. Her body is incapable of sensing extreme temperatures, disabling her to react. And her parents live nervous, nervously watching as she plunges into the full tilt of childhood, deprived of natural alarms. Now think about that if you're a parent. That would be pretty unnerving, wouldn't it? In the school cafeteria, teachers put ice in Ashland's chili. If her lunch is scalding hot, she'll gulp it down anyway. On the playground, a teacher's aide watches Ashland from within 15 feet, keeping her off the jungle gym and giving chase if she runs, because if she falls too hard, she will not cry. She doesn't feel the pain. Her mother said, some people would say that's a good thing, but it's not. Pain is there for a reason. It lets your body know something's wrong and it needs to be fixed. I'd give anything for her to feel pain. There's a spiritual form of this genetic disease. It's called apathy. Apathy is when someone isn't interested in important things. An apathetic person just doesn't seem to care. They're a person who's not moved by moving things, and they should be moved by, by moving things. Apathy is, is something that you've probably experienced in, in life. Um, you might feel apathy for the political process, watching the candidates bicker back and forth at, at one another, although you should fight against that, because one of those bickerers will become your president. That can have consequences if you get apathetic towards something like that. You can become apathetic toward your job, and that can have consequences. But apathy toward the, toward the things of God, toward spiritual things, spiritual apathy is, is deadly. It's a road that leads to destruction because it begins 
with a loss of holy desires, and you move to a point where you can't feel. And you can't feel the things that, are, that, that you should feel. You can't feel what, what will harm you. Apathy is not I don't know. Apathy is I don't care. If you don't know, there's lots of things I don't know. And knowledge can always be gained, if not here, on the other side of heaven. But, but apathy is I don't care. It's, it's, it's a condition that renders you unmotivated toward the, toward the things of God. And when you understand that, that your will follows your desire, you can see why that's a, that's a deadly thing. I mean, ultimately, we, we make lots of excuses, but we do what we want to do. Don't you? If you look at your life, you find a way to do what you really want to do. And if you don't want to do it, and you know you should do it, you find an excuse for why you couldn't do it. But really, a lot of it goes down to desire. Your will follows your desire. And if you're unmotivated toward the things of God, you have no desire for the things of God, then, then the pursuit of God doesn't, doesn't happen. In the physical body, lacking feeling is a precursor to, to death. When, when the body begins to, to shut down, it reduces circulation to the, to the limbs and, and other things. It centralizes it to the, to the vital organs. And the lesser parts of the body can grow numb, and, and if there's no circulation to those, then, then they eventually die. In the same way, in our Christian lives, in, in our lives, if, even if we're not a Christian, the fervor of spiritual circulation, when that's cut off, the desires begin to numb and, and they, get, they get more numb and then the soul eventually dies. It's dangerous. It's a deadly condition. And just like Ashley, you may not, or Ashlyn I should say, you may not even be, be aware of its seriousness. It's exactly how Jesus describes the church in Laodicea. The Christians there thought that they were healthy, and, and they were not. They, they plunged headlong into life, de, deprived of spiritual alarms. They, those spiritual alarms would, would lead them to repentance, but, but they can't hear them, them going off. At 3.10 a.m. this morning, uh, I was, was brought up out of my sleep by a, a beeping it was coming from the smoke alarm, and the battery was dead. And you know if the battery is dead, you can't go back to sleep. And then, of course, my house is probably like your house. They're all linked together. So if one goes off, they go off in the whole house. And so I had to get on a chair and pull the plug and get it out of the wall, and then I left it on the, left it on the, the sink that was there, and the battery was still in it. And so it's got a secondary battery that... So it continues to beep, so then I have to get back out of bed. And I wrapped it in a blanket and stuck it in the basement. <laughs> Went back to bed and couldn't go back to sleep. So at 3.20, I was up. Well, that was aggravating for me to be, to be woken up by that beep. But I wouldn't be aggravated at all if that smoke alarm went off and my house was really on fire. And I would be grateful and thankful that that was connected to the smoke alarms in my children's room that, that brought them out of a sleep. But it was a false alarm. The spiritual alarms that would, that would lead them to repentance, Laodicea doesn't hear, and it's not a false alarm. It's an alarm 
that the Lord of the church sounds to, to the Laodiceans. Christ in this letter is called the faithful and true witness in contrast to the church at Laodicea that was neither faithful nor true. If you're lacking spiritual passion, or maybe you've lost a step in your pursuit of the Lord, I want you to look and listen to the words of Jesus this morning, because He's going to show you where to find God's grace and how to get off of the path before it's too late. So I want you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 14 through 22. It's the last of the, the seven letters. And it's titled, The Lukewarm Church. Let's read verse 14. It says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, or the church in Laodicea is probably better, right? These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish... You were cold or hot, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, he repeats that three times, I will spew you or vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me. Gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church of Laodicea is described as an active congregation, but it was neither cold nor hot. It has activity, but it has no life. It has religion, but it has no relationship. It has existence, but it has no passion. John Walford said the, in the history of the human race, no one has been harder to reach for Christ than the religionist. The one who is quite satisfied with the measure of his devotion to God and with the items which to him represent religion, far easier to win are the harlots and the publicans than the Pharisees and Sadducees. So true. It's because the, the drunks and the harlots know their need, and the religionist doesn't see his need. The drunk grasps his need. He wakes up in the morning with a headache. He sees the consequences that come into his life whenever... He loses the job or his family or whatever it might be. But the apathetic man feels no urgency. In fact, he feels nothing. He's not hot. He's not cold. He's, he's in this middle position. And that's how Jesus describes the church at Laodicea in the, the seventh letter. And you can, you can see the location of Laodicea right here. And I want you to notice how close it is to, to Colossae there. 
It was known as the Triad. Hariopolis and Colossae and Laodicea. It was about 10 miles to, to the west from Colossae. Very close, within walking distance. And there was commerce that happened between the, between the three cities. The city was famous for its, for its black wool and, and its eye And it was, that was sought throughout the, the empire. And there, there are beautiful ruins that, that are still there. If, if you go and see them, this is one of the, one of the temples that, that was there. And you can see the Laodicean aqueducts. You probably are familiar with this passage because of the, the lukewarm water that, that is brought in. Here's a picture of one of the aqueducts, that the, the actual terracotta pipes that brought the water that 20-some miles or so from the spring into the, into the city. The church was established during the Apostle Paul's ministry. We're not told specifically who planted the church, but it's likely that it was Epaphras or, or one of his converts. We know that from some references in the book of Acts and because he was the one who, who was over in, in, in Colossae. The church didn't lack instruction. I mean, this is their condition is not because they, they didn't know. As a matter of fact, uh, they had plenty of, of, of truth. The letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians was to be read by the Laodiceans. And while they, they didn't lack spiritual instruction, they, they did lack spiritual pursuit. And Jesus instructs them on that. He instructs them on the, on the perils of apathy and the peculiar ways of, of grace. There's two things. I saw the perils of apathy before I ever went to, the, went to the text, because I've read this before, but I missed one of the greatest nuggets, which is why I love exposition, consistent exposition. The perils of the ways of, 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 of grace. This is how I would outline it. There's the character of Christ in verse 14, like you normally see, the description of Jesus, like... He, he does in every single one of the, the letters. He gives the condition of the church. I know your works. There is the, the, the divine knowledge of the Lord of the church describing what he sees and what he knows. That's in verses 15 through 17. There's a call for repentance in verses 18 through 20, which includes that familiar passage that you've probably heard before. Behold, I stand at the door and, and knock. And then there's the capacity of grace in verses 21 through, through 22. It begins with the, the character of Christ. Look at verse 14. To the letter of the church in, in Laodicea, write, These things says the, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Remember, Jesus describes himself as the to establish that he has the answers or the solution for the need that they have. And, and he gives three titles to himself. He is a, he's the certain Savior. He's, he's the Amen. He's the consistent source. He's the faithful and true witness. And he is creation's starting point, the beginning of creation. Jesus describes himself in that way, and he begins by saying, these things says the amen. Now, 
amen is, is used in, in a number of, of different contexts. It's encouraging for a preacher to hear amen whenever he says uh, something that's, that's encouraging from the Bible. It's said in church, it's said outside of church. Amen, though, used in the Bible means something specific. It means, so be it, or let it be done. And when we say amen to the things of the Lord, we're saying, Lord, let it be done as you have, as you have stated. It's a, it's a declaration that emphasizes the certainty of what is spoken. It's a declaration. You say amen. It's, you're declaring the certainty of what is just spoken. When God ends the statements that he makes in the Bible with amen, he's, he's declaring the certainty of what he's just said. And what Jesus is about to say will surely come to pass because he is the amen. It's not just that his words will certainly come to pass. He will come to pass. Everything that he does will come to pass. When Christ speaks, it's the the final word. And his words will surely take place. One of the side effects of spiritual apathy is indecisiveness. A person who's apathetic rarely makes a move because they, they don't see a need to. They're halt between two positions. You remember Israel was in that condition several times. And you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And you remember how he goes up onto the mountain and he says, If, if Yahweh be God, then serve him. If Baal be God, then serve him. And Elijah had no concern whatsoever with that challenge because he knew Baal was not God and he knew that God could withstand any challenge that a human being could make. Apathy brings you to the point of indecisiveness. You're undecided, you're uncertain, it's paralyzing. Halt between two positions in a no-man's land, as they, as they say. Because again, action follows desires. Jesus says, the words that I speak are not uncertain. What I'm getting ready to say, they are yes and amen in me. These things will be that way because he is faithful and true. That's the second thing he says. He is the faithful and true witness. Notice he says witness. Jesus is a faithful witness. The Bible says, Jesus said, You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Whenever the disciples said, Show us the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's a faithful witness. There's no lack of authenticity. And there's no hint of inaccuracy in him. He's, he's faithful. He's authentic. And he's accurate. He's, he's, he's true. He can be trusted and his words are sure. Because he was there in the beginning. Look at how he describes himself in the, in the third terms. The beginning of the creation of God. Um, he's creation's starting point. Here's a reference to the Colossian heresy, and I won't go into that, but read some of the background material of how this church is being affected. Jesus, the Colossian heresy, said that Jesus was a created being. That's what some false religions of the world claim, that Jesus was a created being. Mormonism says that, that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. 
Jehovah's Witness says that Jesus is a created being. And Jesus says, says no, I'm the RK. I'm the, I am the, the beginning of the creation. I'm the primary fountainhead. It means the source of creation. Uh, I, if you've ever watched the, the, the movies, the Chronicles of, of Narnia, the very first one, I love that scene where, where in Narnia where the, where the white witch is, is coming and, and, and she brings Edmund captive to Aslan and all of the armies are gathered there and Aslan's in his tent and the white witch comes in all of her pomp and circumstance and, and, and Aslan the lion comes out of the tent and, and the witch stands before him and begins to address him and she's got Edmund there captive and, and she demands that payment be made for Edmund's life since, since he's her captive. And she begins to quote from, the, from the, the law of Narnia. Blood for blood is what she's saying. And just about the time she gets the words out of her mouth, Aslan roars in response. Don't quote the deep magic to me, witch. I was there whenever it was written. And she's immediately silent. Jesus says... I was there when it began. I spoke it into existence. Into existence. He's the creator. How foolish it is to challenge God or think that He has something that He hasn't figured out something that we have or that we can't grasp. He's the creator of all things. And He's telling the Colossian church. I'm the Amen, the faithful and true witness. I am the beginning. I was there in the beginning. And they're not to answer back, but to lay their hands over their mouths and be silent. Because while Jesus was all of these things, the church that bears His name is neither faithful or true as a witness. They were indifferent. He moves to the condition of the church. If you would, at verse 15. That familiar phrase, I know your works. I want you to note that Jesus praises them for nothing. He actually rebukes them. He says that they're indifferent to their calling. They call themselves a church. And yet they were indifferent to that. They're gathering in His name. And He says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold or cold nor hot. I should say. He doesn't condemn them for wickedness. He doesn't praise them for for anything. He doesn't say you have this this list of sinful actions. His primary rebuke is indifference. He says, I know your deeds and you're lukewarm. They were inconsistent to their master. They didn't match him as faithful and true. And they were indifferent to their calling. Now, I know you've heard preaching on this verse before, more than likely, so I won't belabor the point. But Jesus is using a metaphor. A metaphor that the Colossians would understand. Springs were all over Asia. And they were located in in certain areas. In that that triangle of, of cities, Areopolis was known for its hot springs. There's hot springs Virginia, right? Warm Springs, 
West Virginia, is that right? Should that tell me something? Hot Springs, Virginia, Warm Springs, West Virginia. Colossae was known for its cold springs, but Laodicea had to bring its water a long distance. And when that water, when it started out hot or started out cold, as it traveled through those pipes, traveling that long distance, it became tepid. It was, it was disagreeable for consumption. And when the water arrived, it was said that it was, it was dirty, foul, and, and lukewarm. And look at what Jesus says is about the church as he makes this, this illustration or analogy. Verse 16. He says, so then, because you are tepid, because you're, you're lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. You ever been around somebody that has just taken a, a big drink of Mountain Dew or coffee or something like that and coughs? They spew it everywhere. That's the idea here. It's like an involuntary reaction. The, the, it's interesting, the Philadelphia church right before Jesus was happy, he was, he, the church made him happy, he was pleased with their faithfulness. And we talked last week about one of the encouragements that God gives us as believers is to know that we, we are pleasing to him. MacArthur said, some churches make the Lord weep, others make him angry. The Laodicean church made him sick. I mean, that's strong language. I think my heart is... Is just as grieved at the idea that something I would do would make God sick as, as it soars whenever I think I do something that pleases the Lord. And using this knowledge of the, of the water source, he brings this smashing rebuke. He says, when, when I come to you as one who takes my name, I drink of your worship and your service that you do in my name, and my involuntary response is, is to take it in and immediately spit it back out again. Indifference makes you good for nothing. You're not refreshing like a, like a cold drink of water. You're not relaxing like a hot springs. You're, you're not... You're worthless in that service. It's a great lie of Satan who says, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. If you don't take a position, then you're not accountable. Well... What does the Bible say about that? Who is Jesus Christ? I don't know. Today we have this idea that if you say you don't know, you're not definitive about anything, you don't take a position on anything, somehow that's being humble. Well, you can, be, you can have firm conviction about things because of what the Bible says and be humble about it. Taking no position about Christ is a position. Look at John three eighteen through 19. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Why is that? Because this is judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You're not in a neutral position. You're not born a blank slate. You're born and shaped in iniquity. Your heart, my heart, is already, is already bent toward rebellion. It can get more rebellious. Wickedness can manifest itself to greater degrees because of our environment and other things. But you are born, and I am born with a heart that wants to rule, and it's, it's unrighteous. And you're condemned already, whether you believe in Jesus Christ or, or, or not. The Bible says, choose this day. 
whom you'll serve. Decide. You will listen to your own heart or the words of your Creator who made you. Indifference, like with Laodicea, renders you without care and, and you'll not stay in that position. You'll keep drifting from the shore until you can't swim back under your own accord and you have to be, you have to be rescued. But the Laodiceans were not only indifferent, they were, they were imperceptive about their, about their condition. They were indifferent, and they didn't even know it. Look at what he says in verse 17. Because you say, and look at verse 18, you say, and yet I counsel you. You say in verse 17, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you don't know that you're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you. Laodicea was known for its three industries, the, the black wool, the ISAV that was actually made in a pagan temple and had a medical school in it, and the, and the third was its wealth and banking structure. Because of that, the, it was a very lucrative financial center. And the Lord, again, uses all of that and brings a cutting blow to them. He says, you think your, your, your outward activity and goods are, are spiritual wealth? You say... That all of these things prove that you're mine and that they're value? You think this? Let me tell you what you're really like in my eyes. You're not rich, you're poor. You don't have superior vision, you're blind and you're lost in your sins. You, you don't have a spiritual garment of righteousness. You're naked in my sight. The emperor's new clothes, as they proverbially say. One of the reasons apathy is so deadly is because there's no motivation. And also there's an inability to discern the real danger. You don't want to change because you can't really see how bad it is. In our new members class that we did yesterday, all of the pastors give their testimonies. It's a great time. Um... And uh, I don't know how many times I've heard those men's testimonies, but every single time it touches my heart. And sometimes a different one. Yesterday, it was, it was Pastor Brody who, who went home sick right after Sunday school, so you can pray for him. And he gives a testimony of the fact that whenever he was a, a child, he was taken to uh, a, a church camp, and they gave him a Bible, and he jokes about how old he is and... Uh, you know, that they gave him a Bible, and in the Bible you underlined salvation verses, and you underlined it with a red pencil. He said, "This was." He said, "I'm so old. This was even before highlighters. I don't mean that they don't have computers or iPads. They don't even have highlighters." So he underlines with a red pencil. Some of you are going, "Yeah, I remember those red pencils." Yeah. And he underlined those, and he took the Bible home like a good luck charm, and he kept it all of those years, and. He was at work, and he said he had some men that he later learned were, were Bible-believing Christians trying to evangelize him, and he, he would avoid them, and they would, they would hound him. And one day, one of them caught him. And in a few short uh, lines of discussion, he, the, they started talking about about, his, about what it meant to be saved. And Pastor Birdie said, Oh, I remember an experience when I, whenever, I was a, whenever I was a kid like that. I, I prayed and, and um, 
the man said, well, are you saved? And PB said, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure. And he said, the man just looked at, me and looked at him and said, well, hell is a long time. If I were you, I'd want to be sure. I'd want to know. And just walked off. He said, I was just left there. And he said, that question haunted me. I didn't know. I don't know. Agnosticism will send you to hell. Not knowing is not a position. Be hot or be cold. Know that you're cold. But don't be lukewarm. It's self-deception. The sinner cannot see his own condition or the danger he faces. And amazing grace sings of what God does to help him. I was blind, but now I what? See. God is faithful to show us our error and call us to repentance, which is what he does next, the call of repentance. Look at verse 18. I counsel, I will counsel you, buy from me. Now, he's not saying salvation is, is for sale. He's saying turn to the true source, the only place that you can find it. Come to me, and in me you will find spiritual gold, white garments, and, and true eye-salve. They, they were inept in their witness. He's bringing this from Isaiah 55. After Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, he says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to waters. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. And that abundance is in Jesus Christ. Jesus alone can cure your soul, and you have no money, you have no currency, you have no righteousness to get you into heaven. Jesus Christ, though, has all righteousness, and He offers it freely to you by grace, if you will but turn to Him. That's what He's saying. I counsel you, buy from me what only I can provide, and I will freely give it. You won't find answers looking elsewhere. You can spend your money on all kinds of bread, the bread of the world, and it won't satisfy. You won't find satisfaction outside of Christ, but in Christ, your soul can delight in the abundance of Jesus. And if you're a Christian, the leanness that you feel while apathetic is actual evidence that God is there and that He's not forsaken you. Look at verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. It's the promise of discipline to believers. It's to those I love. God says, I won't leave alone. I won't let you enjoy sin. I won't let you be comfortable in your condition. Yet what you have to do is, is be zealous and... Repent. Look at verse 20. He describes what that looks like. This the condition as the Lord finishes the, the letter. He, he tells them to be, to be zealous and repent. And you find Jesus in an odd location here. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice 
and opens the door. I will come into him and will dine with him, and he will meet with me. It's a, it's a, the dining is, a, is the idea of fellowship. You find Jesus at the end of this letter in an odd place. The verse shows the Lord standing outside of the door of his own church. This is the context here is Christ and the church. Jesus is found outside of his church knocking on the door or the, the people that claim to be a church. In the other six letters, Jesus communicates in some way that there's typically two, two groups. There, there's the group that he's rebuking as apostate, and there's, the, there's the, a group that he calls to, to overcome. But here he says, if anyone, if anyone hears my voice, as if there's no one, he's outside. He says, let me in, and I will fellowship with you. You don't have a church without Jesus Christ in the church. You don't have salvation without Christ in your life. And what begins with indifference leads to fullness with other things, and that fullness leads to blindness, and blindness leads to not seeing the, the need to correct your life, and, and eventually you'll find Jesus outside of it. What a sad picture. The Lord of glory outside of the doors of his own church, desiring fellowship with its people, but they'll not listen and not open the door. What should Jesus do? Well, what Jesus should do is walk away. Call a lightning bolt down into heaven and burn the whole place to the ground. It's apostate. There's no one inside. And Jesus is outside. That's what we would do. But that's not what God does. Look at verse 21. They're inattentive to their master. And there's the capacity of, of grace. Verse 21, he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as, also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, do you understand the significance of what he's saying there? The indifferent, apathetic, Christ-denying, worldly people are invited by Christ to one day rule with him. To sit with Christ, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Now, in chapters 4 and 5, where we're going next, that throne room is going to be described where there are 24 elders, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, people bowing before that throne. This is not just a little seat in the back corner. This is the centerpiece of the universe. This is God Almighty sitting upon the throne. And the indifferent, apathetic, Christ-denying, worldly people are invited by Christ to rule one day with Him. I will grant Him to sit with me on my throne. Now, you talk about grace. That's grace. It's where Christ rules from. Why? How can that be? Well, he describes it in the second half of that verse. I will grant Him to sit with me on my throne. How can Christ grant sinners to sit with Him on his throne, even the ones described in Laodicea, because I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I also conquered and I sat down. Jesus receives sinners and fellowships with them, not because they conquer or understand or repent well, but because he conquered 
their sin on the cross. Finished the work the Father gave him to do. And the evidence of that is he is seated. He has sat down. Finished his work at the right hand until one day he will return for his church. He's done the work. And now you simply trust in that work. And buy from him what you cannot afford yourself. But what the greatest gift ever given has already paid for, and that was the blood of Jesus Christ that can cleanse you from all sin, can take you from apathy to a spiritual zealot, <laughs> that can take the deadest heart, the hardest heart, and turn it into, into clay, that can take the, the most smoldering, smoky fire that's there or used to be there and turn it into a blaze. What a Savior. Don't you bow your heads. Jesus says, be zealous and repent. How can I be zealous and repent if I don't feel? I think the answer is in turning to Him. Will you cease and will you turn? Will you stop looking in other places and look to Christ? Christian, choose this day. Choose this day. Whom you will serve. Will you serve your appetites? Your pocketbooks? The world? Your boss? Or will you serve Christ? The first step in feeling again is to, is to look. And as the song says, as you look into His wonderful face, the things of earth will go strangely dim. And as you do that, the juices will begin to flow. And you'll begin to take a step, and then another step, and then another step. And the next thing you know, just as you found yourself cold and indifferent away from the Lord, you'll find yourself, your heart beating again, full of love and spiritual zeal. Oh, Father... How tempting the world is, how deceptive our hearts are, how easy it is to get cluttered. You even remind us to lay aside the weights and the sins which thus so easily beset us. Oh, Father, I pray for every one of us this morning. I pray for the Christian here who's gotten cold. Return them, Lord, by seeing the grace that you offer. Lord, help them to look to you. Give them the strength that they don't have in themselves. Oh, Father, I pray for, for anyone here this morning that doesn't know Christ. Oh, God, help them to see that, that the, the bread that the world offers is, as Spurgeon said, nothing but ashes. It doesn't satisfy. But, oh, Jesus satisfies. Help them to turn to You, Lord, and find rest for their souls. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.